Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel 22 this Lord's Day. 1 Samuel 22 as we continue uh, to walk through the book of 1 Samuel together. And if you were with us last Lord's Day, you know that we now find David on the run from Saul. We saw in chapter 21 how David, David at this point is desperate. Uh, and in his desperation, he uh, deceives, he depends on himself, he sees the sword of Goliath and seems to glory in it instead of trusting in God. And ultimately, uh, he ends up in the city of his enemies. He goes to Gath, the hometown of Goliath, and uh, there, of course, he is not meeting a warm welcome. He has to fake madness just to survive. And so that's where we left off and where we pick up today is David is continuing to run and to hide and this time we find him in a cave. But it's there in that cave that we will see a turning in his heart as he's turned to all these other things. Uh, Now we will see him turn to the Lord and once again trust in the Lord. And so we're going to look to this entire chapter, chapter 22 and add a reverence For God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this passage for us. This is what God's holy word says. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him there. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became the commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all that time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart. And go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest at Hethreth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered. And the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under a tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That you may all, all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, Who stood by the servants of Saul? I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he acquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him? 
so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and he struck down the priest. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me shall be, you shall be in safe keeping. If you would pray with me. Fathers, we consider that the history that we have in front of us this morning, as we consider these events in chapter 2 of verse Samuel, help us to remember that this is your holy word. This is the history of your people. And in that history, there is much for us to learn. And we can see here, Your promises kept. We can see here your judgments are true. And we can see here the need in our desperation and despair to trust in you. And so I pray that's what we would do today. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you've ever gone on a tour at Mammoth Cave or studied much of the history... Now, you may have heard the name Floyd Collins. Floyd Collins was born in the late 1800s in a southern part of Kentucky, and uh, he and his family uh, came to own a cave. Uh, This was during a time in the history in our commonwealth known as the Cave Wars, where people were discovering caves and giving tours and profiting from these things, and so uh, Colin's family owned one of these caves. The problem was it, it was rather remote and out of the way. It was hard to attract tourists to it. And so uh, he set about to try to find other cave systems that were uh, easier to get to that might connect to the one that his family owned. And sure enough, he came to discover a cave that's now part of what we know as Mammoth Cave. And as he was exploring the cave and uh, trying to tunnel through between these different cave systems... His lamp went out. Now, if you've ever gone on a cave tour, you've probably had that moment where the tour guide had everybody turn off their flashlights, and he turned off his lantern and turned out the lights, and it's just completely utter darkness. So you can imagine what it was for this man to be stuck in a cave trying to tunnel out 
with no light around him. He was desperate and he was in the midst of despair. And despite rescuers' best efforts to reach them as they tried day after day, a part of that cave collapsed around him and he never saw the light of day again. You can imagine just how desperate that situation must have felt for him. Day after day to to be alone in that cave, surrounded by darkness, and not knowing what was going to happen next. It's hard for us to put ourselves in his shoes, but as we go back in history to 1 Samuel 22, we get a glimpse of David's situation, which is not all that different. David here is desperate. David here is in despair. David here is all alone in a cave. But there in that darkness, things are about to change for David. Because it's there that David will be reminded that God uses desperation and despair to draw us back to him. And that's the first point there in your outline. That reminder we see as we study now this 22nd chapter of 1 Samuel. God uses desperation and despair to draw us back to him. Now remember, David at this point has tried so many other things. Uh, He has turned to deception. And we talked last Lord's Day about how uh, David has gotten rather casual in his deception at this point. He's told lie after lie. And it seems at times lies for no reason. He's turned to trusting in himself. We talked about the contrast between when David first sees the sword of Goliath when he goes in battle against him, and he's completely unimpressed with it. And he he even tells him that that God doesn't save by the sword. We don't need a sword to take on this giant. To what we saw last Lord's Day in 1 Samuel 21, where he looks at this sword and he he sees glory in it. He's in awe of it. He says, "There's, there's none like this. Give it to me. And then we saw how David, in his desperation, he he just made bad decisions. He ends up in the city of Gath, of all places, a place where he would have been hated just about more than anywhere else he could have gone. And so he has to fake madness to get out alive. And then he comes to this cave, but it's here in this cave. It's here in this moment of desperation that his heart turns back to the Lord. Now, as you're reading through 1 Samuel 21, 22, you might say, well, where, well, where do we see that? Well, we, we don't see that in its entirety in chapter 22. We, we see it in the psalms that David wrote while he was in the cave. Now, for example, in the psalm that we looked at at the beginning of our time of worship today, uh, Psalm 152. Hey, if you look to Psalm 152, you see in its heading that this was written while David was in the cave. Not just a cave, the cave as it came to be known. And listen to what he writes. Again, verse 4. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. Now that's the picture of desperation for David. He is saying that he's all alone. But notice there he says, look to the right and see. I mean, wouldn't you think David would say, well, look to the right, look to the left, look all around, there's nobody around me. But no, there, there's something significant here about look to the right and see. 
Because if you're a student of the Psalms, you know that it was there at the right hand that David would expect to find help. That's why David writes in Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Psalm 110, verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. Psalm 121, verse 5, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The same psalmist who wrote about the Lord being there, the the protector, the provider, the shelter, being there on His right hand, now says in Psalm 142, Look to the right and see. There's no one, no one, who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. What is David saying? David is saying, I'm all alone, and God's even abandoned me. I look around, and I don't even see the Lord. I'm all by myself. And that's where we often find ourselves, at least how we feel, In our despair, perhaps you can identify with that. Times of suffering in your life, times of suffering in the life of people you love, that those moments when burdens seem overwhelming and you cry out to God, and it seems in that moment that God is not answering. It seems in that moment that God is silent. And there in that moment, you feel alone. You feel Darkness surrounds you. You're in a cave. But I want you to notice what David does in this moment. As he looks to his right hand, as he says very clearly how he feels. Notice what else we read, verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord, and I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So why the contrast here? What's real clear? David says, here's how I feel. I feel alone. I feel like God's abandoned me, forsaken me. I I feel like I'm all alone in the darkness, in the pitch black here. There's no one here to help me. That's how I feel. But then what does David say? But here's what I know. I know that the Lord is my refuge. I know that I'm not alone. I know if I cry to the Lord, He will eventually answer me. And therefore, I will put my trust in the Lord. And friends, what we have there in front of us is a picture of where we need to go in our darkness, in our despair, when we feel abandoned. We don't put our hope and our trust in what we feel. We put our hope and our trust in what we know. And how do we know these things of God? Because He has revealed Himself to us through His Word. And here David is trusting in the promises of his God. And we see how now this this builds in David. Psalm 57, another psalm that's written when he was there in the cave. Verse 1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. 
His hope, his trust is in the Lord. In fact, get into verse 5 in Psalm 57. He says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. David, at that point, he's no longer saying, woe is me, look at me. He's just saying, God, I want to bring you glory. God, I want your glory to fill the earth. Isn't that something? How, as he trusts in God and puts his hope in the truth of God, God takes his eyes off of his circumstances and puts his his attention rightly on the glory of God. Be merciful to me. Be merciful to me, O God. And we see here that that the Lord is David's refuge. This is a picture of faith and action. That this is a picture of faith because faith involves us putting our hope and our trust more in what we know than in how we feel. In fact, faith is bringing all these feelings under the sovereignty and the providence of God and His Word. Pastor Alistair Begg said it well this way. He said, faith is bringing our emotions and our circumstances under the jurisdiction of the promises of God. You hear that? Faith is bringing our emotions, our circumstances, all these things we feel, all these things we're experiencing under the jurisdiction of the promises of God. Faith is putting our hope more in what we know than in how we feel. And that's the picture we see here with David. And notice what happens next. We have no idea how much time passes between David escaping to that cave and when his brothers and his father's house hear of it. But, but as that time passes, at some point, then he's no longer alone. What do we see there? Well, his family comes to his side. And you remember the last time we saw his family? It wasn't the picture of this this, this perfect little uh, fellowship between the brothers, was it? As he was going out there to the field to bring them provision. And as at least one of his brothers is, is calling to, into attention what his true motives were. And now we're at a point down the road. We, we don't know how long down the road, but years have passed at this point. And now there's this reunion with his family and with his father's household there in the cave. And not just with them. And notice God brings along 400 men who come to David. When he's hiding in that cave. Just a side note here that, that I want to mention. There's, there's few other blessings that are as great in our suffering than the fellowship of the family of God. And those times when we feel isolated and alone. Those times when we feel in despair. and Those times when we're desperate. When we feel like no one's listening. No one cares. One of the greatest blessings God gives to us is this. One of the many reasons you need to be a part of a local church is this. Because your suffering is not just yours. It belongs to this body. And we are here to encourage one another and to lift one another up. And to bear one another's burdens. You weren't meant to go through it alone. And we see a picture of that here as God brings this fellowship into David's life. And he he brings these 400 men by his side. And notice how they're described. They're, they're distressed, they're in debt, and they're discontented. It's kind of a picture here of a, of a motley crew that shows up to help David. But it's significant that they're this way because it's all a result of what God said was going to happen. I remember when the people were crying out for a king. 
Remember the warning that Samuel gave to them from God. Well, you want a king, but you need to understand you're going to be indebted to him. And you're going to be distressed by him. Hey, he's going to take your livestock. He's going to take your servants. He's going to tax you. He's going to overwhelm you. You're not going to be happy with this arrangement. And lo and behold, God's word is true. These things all come to fruition. And now 400 of these men, who it seems, had probably bore an extreme amount of burden under Saul, that they now can't take any more of that. And so now they've come to be by David's side along with his parents. And so now David is going to command them. This is the beginning of David's army. But before anything else can happen, he's concerned about his parents. His parents at this point are likely very old. They, they can't just go around with David and his army. So he goes to another enemy of Saul. Verses 3 and 4, he seeks refuge from the king of Moab. You may recall from earlier in 1 Samuel that the, the Moabites were enemies of Saul. And so you can almost get a sense here of a replay. Well, first he goes to the Philistines who are enemies of Saul. And now he's going to the Moabites. But this one's a little different. Because you may recall that David has some Moabite blood in him. <laughs> you remember Ruth's story? The Moabite? And that picture of providence there is... is uh, Pastor Nick mentioned earlier, we're starting to see this come now more in 1 Samuel and how these things fit together in the plans of God. And so generations before, God was preparing for this day. And one of the many things that God was doing there in the book of Ruth and through Ruth's story and in establishing the throne of David, we see a part of that come to fruition now because as David goes to the king of Moabite, certainly there's recognition there of who David's great-grandmother is. That she was a Moabite, she was Ruth. And so, that the king welcomes David's parents in. And he says he will protect them and care for them. And notice there, David says, I, I just want to know what God's will is. Can, can they be here and say keeping until I know the will of God? Again, we've seen a, a turn now in David's heart. Back to the Lord. God uses this desperation and despair to draw David back to him. And he does that same thing in our lives. And the darkness in our caves. He uses those things that we too might seek his will. And that's what David does. And then notice how responsive David is to God's will. And God sends this prophet to him. And the prophet tells him what he's to do. And immediately David does it. Why? Because he is trusting in the Lord. He will now obey the Lord. The Lord is his refuge. And the Lord brings him to this point through his desperation his despair. We see also, number two in your outline there, that God uses the plans of wicked men to accomplish his good purposes. So the second lesson we have here is that, that there's great wickedness that takes place in this passage, and yet God is sovereign even over the hearts of wicked men, and he will use these things in his sovereign plan. And so now the scene shifts from the cave back to Saul. And now here Saul is, and, and we have that picture now of Saul with the, the spear in his hand. And you can see his anger and his rage coming out as he's speaking to his servants. As he's threatening his servants. He's essentially afraid here of a coup. He's afraid of an overthrow. He's heard about David. 
He's heard about the 400 who've gone out to David. Now he's looking to his servants and he's wondering how many of them are going to go and follow David. And so now he, he tries to, to, to manipulate them. He, he warns them. He threatens them. Well, David's not going to make you a commander over thousands. David can't give you the things I can give you. You better follow me and not David. And then in his madness, he starts talking about how none of them warned him, how none of them, you know, whoa, whoa, is me. None of you told me when my son was conspiring with David. Whoa, whoa, is me. David's lying in wait for me, which is a total lie. David's running from Saul. Saul's the mad one here. But he's just trying to bring pity on himself. He's trying to bring sorrow for himself. And notice his servants at this point, they're probably afraid to say anything, but there's one who speaks up. Doeg, the Edomite. If you wonder why it always says Doeg, the Edomite, I think the author wants us to understand that Doeg was not a part of God's covenant people. He was an Edomite. He was an outsider. And yet he's the one in whom Saul's going to trust here because he tells Saul that he was there uh, and, and he heard Ahimelech and David talking and he starts to tell him part of what took place. Notice he leaves out the detail where David told Ahimelech that he was on a mission for Saul, <laughs> that this was with the blessing of Saul, that he wasn't conspiring with David against Saul. He thought he was serving the king in his actions. But Doeg here just seems to want to stir up strife He's a wicked man serving a wicked king. And so he tells the parts of the story that he knows will enrage Saul even more to the point that Saul now will summon Ahimelech and all of his household there. And of course, as they're coming, they have no idea what's about to take place. Perhaps they think they're going to be honored or rewarded because they had just done something in service to the king. They just helped out the king's servant, David. But no, what they come to is a horrific display of wickedness. As Saul orders the murder of Ahimelech and all his father's household and, and the people around him, these servants, they seem to understand how wicked a thing this is. They won't raise their sword against the Lord's priests. But Doeg, the Edomite, well, he'll do it. And he does. Not only that, he goes to Nob and he slaughters every man, woman, child, and animal in that city. It's a horrific display. Horrific. But notice the picture it gives us here of Saul. Saul is now at a point where he will stop at nothing to destroy the Lord's anointed one. That he will stop at nothing to preserve the grip he has on his throne. That he will kill and order the slaughter of anyone that interferes with his plans, and for those who stand with the plans of the Lord's anointed. And so Saul joins the ranks of wicked rulers throughout God's word who have opposed God and opposed his plan. Rulers like Pharaoh who offered up the Hebrew children and sacrificed to their, his false gods because he, he wanted to hold on to his reign and his kingdom. Rulers like we see in the gospel like Herod who offers up and slaughters the Hebrew children because he wants to hold on to his throne and his kingdom. 
And that's the picture we have here of Saul. He wants to hold on to his throne. He wants to hold on to his kingdom. And he will kill anyone and everyone that gets in his way. And it is easy if we are in the story, if we're in 1 Samuel 22, to look around at that situation and think, well, the evil's winning. That the wicked king is ruling. Look, he just wiped out an entire city. Who can stop Saul? David's hiding in a cave. He's got this, this motley crew with him. They don't have anything. Saul's taking everything from them. Wickedness seems to be winning. And yet, what do we see here? We see that God is still sovereign over all of this. Now, the slaughter of the priests and of the people in Nob, this was Doeg's fault. He took his sword to them. This was Saul's fault. He, he ordered this. The, the blood is on their hands. In fact, this is even David's fault. Yeah, this goes back to David's deceit. He's the one who lied to Ahimelech in the first place so that Ahimelech gave him the bread and gave him the sword. And he seems to understand this because towards the end of this passage, he says, I have occasioned the death of all the priests. At the very end, he's confessional. He says, this, this is my fault. And so Doeg, Saul, David, they are all culpable for these deaths but the blood is also in some other hands as we read earlier in our time there as pastor david mentioned these deaths were a result of the sin of hophni and phineas eli's worthless sons and eli's refusal to deal with their sin as he needed to and so god told him the day would come the day would come when judgment would come on his Household, and that's exactly what happens here. I can imagine that when God gave that word to Eli, that, that his descendants, some of them, probably trembled. I can imagine that some who were born into the household of Eli, they, they knew of that word of judgment that was coming from God, and they feared it. But I would also imagine as time went on and as generations went on, they didn't fear it so much anymore. And they probably got to the point where they thought, well, this, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> Not so different than today, is it? What does Peter say? He says that when, when the Lord's day comes leading up to that, will there not be people who say, well, we've heard of his coming from the beginning of creation. I mean, are there not people in our day, perhaps some of you this morning, who don't have a healthy understanding and fear of the Lord and the return of Christ and the wrath and the judgment that is coming one day and we don't have it because it seems like it's been delayed so long? Do we not live with a healthy understanding that Christ could return today? And I think many of us, we, we don't, we may say it flippantly. We, we may say it in response to a news story. Well, I hope Jesus comes. The world sure is terrible. But when you think about how we practically live day to day, do we really live with the understanding that He is indeed coming? And that when Christ comes, He will fulfill promises, and those promises are of blessing and judgment. 
And so if your hope is in Jesus today, if you've repented and trusted in Jesus today, this is a good thing to hope for and look to. But if you've not put your trust in Jesus, if today you say, well, there'll always be another day, there'll always be another day, there'll always be another day, know what God's Word says. There won't always be another day. And one day, God may use the wicked of this world the doegs of this world, the souls of this world, to bring His judgment on you. His promises indeed come true. And those promises of judgment are included in that, and that's what we see here. But what we also see in that is that these wicked men and their wicked plans, they, they can't thwart the sovereign plan of God. Pharaoh, as he threw those babies, as he sacrificed those babies into the river, he wasn't thwarting the plan of God because God would preserve from those children one who would rise up and would deliver God's people. Herod, as he ordered the sword against every male child under the age of two, he didn't thwart the plan of God as God had already preserved the life of Christ, the Messiah who would rise up and would rule. And here, Saul's attempt to extinguish the household of the priest, well, it doesn't come to full fruition either because as God said will happen, one would be preserved from them who would then go on and who would lead as a priest in David's kingdom. And he does that exact thing. And so even in the midst of this slaughter, friends, we, we can find rest and hope and trust. Because God is faithful, even in the midst of wicked days. And that brings us to the last point there in your outline. We find rest and security in the faithful providence of God. And so as we come towards the end of this chapter, we see how one of Ahimelech's sons is able to escape from the sword of Doeg. And he comes to David and he tells David all that's happened. And notice what David says to him in verse 23. Stay with me, and do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, and with me you shall be in safekeeping. Now, if I'm Abiathar, I might, I might have some problems with that statement. <laughs> he comes to David, and David says, okay, you've just seen the slaughter of everyone in your family, but you'll be okay now here, because the guy who did that, he wants to kill me too. <laughs> now think about that. That's not real safekeeping, is it? <laughs> yeah, the guy who slaughtered your family, he wants to slaughter my family, so stay with me and you'll be safe. That, that doesn't make any sense, does it? And yet it does when you understand the hand of God that is at work in the life of David. David is the anointed one of God. God's hand is on David. David is saying, yeah, the one who killed your family and wants to kill you, he wants to kill me. But stay with me. Why? Because God's hand is on me. Let me tell you about the time I was sitting across from Saul and he couldn't even hit me with a spear. Actually, it happened more than once. And 
you can imagine David recounting, let me tell you about this time that, that the entire army would not go against this giant of Gath, and yet I, I was trusting God and went out there. I, did, I, could, I tried to take this armor. It didn't fit, couldn't carry it, so I took a sling and some stones. That's what I knew. That's what I was used to. And the Lord, the Lord delivered me that day. You stay with me. They're safekeeping with me. Because my refuge is in the Lord. My trust is in the Lord. And while my circumstances might not suggest it, and while the emotions that I've felt may not speak of it, my, my heart, my mind, I, I'm focus is set on trusting in God. And if you will trust in Him with me, you too will be under the shadow of His wing. And friends, that's, that's the Lord's offer to us today. Now that's the invitation in the cave for us today. In our darkness and despair, we are invited to trust in the Lord's anointed one and to find our refuge in Him. Because with Him, and only with Him, will we find safekeeping. And, and know this, that that is not an invitation to a life of ease. David wrote these things during one of the darkest, hardest times in his life. That that is not an invitation to a life without heartache and despair and overwhelming pain. In fact, if you trust in the Lord, you abandon all else and put your hope in him friends that doesn't mean you're not going to find yourself in the cave crying out to the god you've put your trust in god where are you but in the darkness in the despair we are reminded of what we know and if we indeed put our trust in him his promises are true and what does he promise he will never leave us he will never forsake us that if we are in Christ, we are secure. And the day will come when Christ will return. And on that day, we have nothing to fear of it if we've placed our hope and we've placed our trust in Him because He is faithful and His promises are true. So our call this morning is to turn from how we feel and to trust in what we know. I started with the story of one Kentuckian born in the late 1800s. I'll end with the story of another one born in the late 1800s, just less than 10 miles away from where Floyd Collins, the, the caver that I mentioned earlier, was born. This man's name was Thomas Chisholm. And Ch uh, Thomas was not the explorer. <laughs> that Collins was. He spent much of his time indoors studying and reading. He wanted to be a minister of the gospel, and as he studied to be a minister, he became a minister, but unfortunately, he suffered with such poor health that he was only able to minister for about a year before his, his illnesses, his health, wouldn't allow him to continue. And here he watched all of his dreams, all of his hopes fall apart. Why? Because a physical illness. He could see out his window other people who were healthy going about doing all kinds of things in their life not to bring glory to God. And here he was wanting to bring glory to God and yet he could not do it in the way that he thought he would do that. 
and he felt alone. And he felt darkness. And so he, as we should, turned to not what he felt, but what he knew. He turned to the Word of God and he opened up Lamentations 3. And if you've ever read Lamentations 3, you know that it starts out with Jeremiah's despair. He talks about how nothing's working, everything's falling apart. In fact, Jeremiah in Lamentations 3 describes God as a bear lying in wait to devour him. That's how he feels. But then, Jeremiah turns to what he knows. And he writes this in Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And he went on to write a poem based on that passage. I'll read you part of that poem this morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I've needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And as you know, that poem became a hymn. And generations have sang it since. A reminder to us of the faithfulness of our God, who is faithful to us in the darkness and the despair, who is faithful to us, as Pastor Nick mentioned earlier, in all times in life in all circumstances he is our faithful God and he invites us to place our trust in him and so as we invite you to trust in God as we offer a time of invitation this morning we're going to sing together great is thy faithfulness so if you would stand with me as I pray for us and as we prepare to sing father we thank you that you indeed are a faithful God And I pray, Lord, this morning that our hope and our trust would be not in our emotions, not in our circumstances, not in the darkness of the cave we may find ourselves in, but that our hope and trust would be in you, our faithful God, because great is your faithfulness. Lord, your promises indeed will come true, promises to bless and promises to judge. So I pray, Lord, if there's any here this morning who's yet to trust in Jesus, that today would indeed be the day of salvation for them. I pray as we come into this time of invitation, God, for those who, who need to take that step of publicly professing Christ as Lord, of following in obedience and baptism, of, of joining this church fellowship, of not trying to go at these things alone. We, we need the body. And there's some here this morning who need to take that step and join this body of believers. Brothers, it may be they just need to sing these words, that they need to pray, that they need to repent, that they need to put their hope and their trust in you. And I pray we would do that very thing now as we respond to your word and sing, Great is thy faithfulness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family and guests, as we sing, I'll be down front here to talk with you if the Lord's leading you to make any of those decisions or if you just need someone to pray with you. We invite you to come as we sing about the faithfulness of our great God.